Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the late historian Michael Gannon used to say that when the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock in 1620, the city of St. Augustine was up for urban renewal. For our 400th episode, we'll look back 400 years to what was happening in Florida then. The church was always a, a partner of Spanish expansion. And indeed, some of the great expansion of the church through her mission system uh, preceded the advance of other elements of Spanish society. We'll look at Spanish colonial documents describing the 1620s in Florida. These diocesan records give us a glimpse into the daily lives of those in St. Augustine. And we'll discuss pioneer newspaper woman Marie Ringo Holderman. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The renowned Florida historian Michael Gannon died in April 2017 at the age of 89. Dr. Gannon was author or editor of 10 books, including The Cross in the Sand from 1965. In that book, Gannon demonstrated how the real first Thanksgiving happened in St. Augustine in 1565, more than half a century before the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock in 1620. A longtime professor of history at the University of Florida, Dr. Gannon taught several generations of Florida historians who are working in the state today. Gannon was formerly a Catholic priest who was working in St. Augustine in the early 1960s as the town was preparing to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the founding of America's oldest continuously occupied city. We spoke with Dr. Gannon as St. Augustine was preparing to commemorate their 450th anniversary in 2015. There were a number of individual and institutional contributions to the 400th anniversary, and then there was a citywide coordinating committee that oversaw a lot of other activity collectively. As far as the Catholic Church is concerned, there were two major products of our efforts, I say I, being a priest historian with the Diocese of St. Augustine at the time. First at the old mission uh, where the first parish mass was celebrated on September 8, 1565, it was decided to build a cross because that was central to the original ceremony where Father Francisco Lopez, the fleet chaplain, soon to be first pastor of the first parish, came ashore ahead of Pedro Menendez Aviles, the leader of the founding expedition, and um, then went forward to meet Menendez holding a cross, and Menendez came on land, knelt, and kissed the cross. And so uh, Archbishop Joseph P. Hurley of the Diocese of St. Augustine 
thought it best to highlight the church's contribution by the erection of a very large cross. And ultimately, it was constructed of stainless steel and rose to a height of 208 feet. I think it is still the tallest freestanding cross in the Western Hemisphere. And I think it's very impressive. It, uh, it's stately, it has a wonderful design that was done by an architectural firm in Boston, Massachusetts. It um, can be seen 14 miles out to sea, and it's grown among and upon uh, the people who live in this community and has become a symbol of the first mission to the North American natives and the first parish erected by Europeans in this country. Also part of St. Augustine's 400th anniversary was the construction of a contemporary church called the Prince of Peace and a bridge linking the church with the historic mission grounds. Plans were made for a library and research center on the property, but funding was not available. Today, visitors to the mission site can also see the statue of Father Francisco Lopez. That statue was erected in the 1950s. It was executed by a distinguished Yugoslav sculpture, sculptor, Ivan Mestrovich, but it was placed at, in a copse of trees where it did not stand out against a dark background. And um, the plan that the architects in 1965 came forward with was to move it to a site on open ground where the figure of Father Lopez with his arms in the air would stand out against the sky. And now, at long last, the statue has been moved to that space, and you can see the dramatic difference in uh, the figure of Father Lopez as he's seen completely and clearly now against uh, the sky, and directly in front of the cross, which stands behind him. As the Spanish began exploring and colonizing Florida, the Reformation movement was underway in Europe, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Henry VIII, and other Reformation leaders were protesting various practices of the Catholic Church and forming Protestant religions. In an effort to maintain its power and influence, the Catholic Church launched the Counter-Reformation. Part of that effort was to send Catholic missionaries around the world, including the New World of Florida. Michael Gannett explains that Spanish imperialism and Catholicism were inextricably linked. The two efforts were coterminous. Uh... Everywhere uh, Spain moved politically and economically and militarily, the church moved too. Uh, the church was always a, a partner of Spanish expansion. And indeed, some of the great expansion of the church through her mission system uh, preceded the advance of other elements of Spanish society. And uh, you can certainly see that in the interior missions of Florida during the 17th century where um, Missions stood out in the wilderness, uh, apart from all of the other examples of Spanish colonial existence. And the friars of the Franciscan order lived very lonely lives servicing their people. So the church was in the forefront. If, uh, if, if, if you want to uh, uh, select any part of the Spanish cultural presence in Florida and the rest of the Spanish provinces of North America, you would have to say the, the church was in advance of all other institutions. St. Augustine is the site of the first Christian church in what would become the United States. 
As Michael Gannon points out, St. Augustine is also the site of our country's first school, first hospital, first court of law, first market, and first city plan. As the Franciscan missionaries tried to convert the Tamuquan Indians who inhabited the region, they discovered that the natives had no written language. A friar named Francisco Pereja developed a phonetic written version of the Tamuquan language, preserving it for us today. Although the Tamuquan people no longer exist, Michael Gannon brings their language to life by reciting the first sentences of the Lord's Prayer. Heka itamile numa hiban tema bisa milanema abak wano leta habema balunu nane mima noho boni habe. A bronze plaque at the mission site in St. Augustine shows the locations of dozens of missions scattered throughout Florida and the southeastern portion of North America. The attempts to convert Florida's indigenous peoples met with varied results. The natives were both welcoming and hostile, depending on the tribe. Uh, when the first missionary to attempt a pacifist approach to the natives he being uh, a Dominican friar who landed at Tampa Bay, uh, the Indians were extremely hostile. They killed him at once. And prior to that, when a number of Franciscan friars and secular priests came with the second expedition of Juan Ponce de Leon to Florida in 1521 on the lower Gulf Coast, they were attacked by the Calusa natives of the site and driven back into the sea. Uh, so it depends. Uh, uh, in uh, most other particulars, uh, the, the native peoples were welcoming, particularly in northern Florida. And that's where the Franciscans had their great successes when they came here in, beginning in 1573 and built missions up the Atlantic coast as far as the border between Georgia and South Carolina. And in the early 17th century, they moved westward across the peninsula and were generally welcome wherever they went and created their greatest number of missions up around the Appalachian country uh, centered on present-day Tallahassee. Those natives had been very hostile to earlier Spanish expeditions in the first half uh, of the 16th century. But in the mission century, they were very accommodating and welcoming to the Franciscan friars. So it, it depends. On, on balance, uh, the natives welcomed uh, the Christian religion and its principal exponents, the Franciscans. The native populations were not the only people who the Spanish missionaries tried to influence. As the British began establishing colonies to the north, the Spanish in Florida tried to encourage runaway slaves to embrace Christianity. Michael Gannon. First of all, during the Spanish period, when a large number of African slaves in 1740 and afterwards escaped from British plantations in the Carolinas, passed through Georgia and down to St. Augustine, where they were given their freedom and where Christianity was preached to them and where they were baptized and began to live normal Christian lives alongside their Spanish and Indian uh, cousins. This was the first Underground Railroad as these African Americans, as you can call them by that date, sought freedom and did so by going to the protection of the Spanish flag and the Christian church. Generally, the 
Slaves from the British plantations were never given the opportunity to learn the Christian religion because it taught the, it taught the dignity of the individual person. And that's something the slave owners didn't want the slaves to learn about. Michael Gannon told President Kennedy about the extensive history of Catholicism in Florida when they met on November 18, 1963. President Kennedy's Catholicism had been an issue for him during his election campaign, and he gave a national speech on the topic to reassure voters. The Florida Chamber of Commerce arranged the meeting between Michael Gannon and President Kennedy as St. Augustine was preparing for their 400th anniversary celebration. It was hoped by the Chamber of Commerce and by the city fathers in St. Augustine that the president would agree to come down earlier rather than later. Uh, it was uncertain if he would be elected to a second term, so they wanted him to come while president and to build up interest in the city that would help generate tourist traffic uh, for the 400th year. And so it was arranged for me to meet with the president at MacDill Air Force Base Officers Club and I did so, uh, present were the president and myself, together with the White House photographer, a photographer from the Tampa Tribune, and a Secret Service agent named Gerald Blaine. And the president and I met for 15 minutes or so. I brought him a photographic copy of the oldest written record of American origin, which was a parish register of a matrimonial uh, sacrament the um, marriage between two Spaniards, a man and a woman, here in the city of St. Augustine, dated in 1594. And uh, he seemed to be very grateful to receive the gift of a photographic copy that was beautifully framed by Victor Rayner, a photographer here in uh, St. Augustine. Well, uh, as he left, uh, he said to me, uh, what is your name again? I told him my name and he said, I'll keep in touch. But four days later, he was dead. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated on November 22, 1963. Florida historian Michael Gannon died in April 2017 at the age of 89. We recorded this interview in 2015. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. If you missed any of the Florida Historical Society virtual annual meeting and symposium, you can find it online at myfloridahistory.org. The theme of the conference was 2020 Hindsight, How Florida's Past Informs the Present and Future. Watch the panel discussions and presentations anytime at myfloridahistory.org. Psalm 100 is one of the hymns sung by the pilgrims who landed at Plymouth Rock in 1620. As historian Michael Gannon was just discussing, people had been living in St. Augustine, Florida for 55 years at that point. 
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, the Spanish controlled Florida in the 1620s, but their reach was a bit tenuous, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. From 1565 onward, with the establishment of St. Augustine as a military garrison, the Spanish crown laid claim to a huge swath of the southeastern U.S. But like you said, territorial control on paper was very different than the reality of arming, feeding, and maintaining colonies throughout the New World. There were several problems that St. Augustine colonists would have faced early on, first of which was the fact that the land was not theirs, so to speak. The southeastern U.S. was home to tens of thousands of indigenous communities. So, you know, there's this complex political interplay between indigenous groups and the Spanish colonists. The missions that were set up around St. Augustine were never really controlled by the Spanish. They never really developed kind of a true alliance that the Spanish hoped might eventually be beneficial to help grow the settlement. In reality, in the 1620s, St. Augustine was a poorly supplied colony, much, much smaller than its larger neighbors in Mexico and Cuba. The population was never more than a few hundred, and the town was often stricken by disease and always seemed to be kind of just this side of survival. So what types of documents survive that can tell us about living conditions in Florida in the 1620s? Well, one of the earliest narrative histories of the New World that really covers from the 16th century to 1720, at least from the Spanish perspective, is this book right here. We're looking at an original copy. This is the Ensayo Cronologico para la Historia General de la Florida, written by Andres de Barcia, published in 1723. And I know we've talked about this actually on other programs, but it's still an important piece of scholarship that talks about European activities in the New World. Not necessarily for its veracity. It's more of a novel than it is a history. Again, very kind of biased view from the Spanish perspective. But it was considered at the time, say, a textbook. And it shaped how future generations understood the New World. The book is broken into chapters by decade, beginning with 1513. But if we jump forward here to, let's say, 1619, this is the first opening paragraph reads, quote, because the governor of Florida, Captain Juan de Salinas, realized the imminent threat to St. Augustine garrison from the proximity of the English and from the continuous navigation along those coasts, and because he would be unable to put the territory in a state of defense to face any extraordinary blow, he furnished to the Viceroy of Mexico, the Marquis de Guadalacazar, a precise account of what he needed to allay his fears." Unquote. That's about it. That's about all we see in reference to Florida in the 1620s. The rest of the chapter deals with what he calls the atrocities committed by the English colonists further north and the invaders coming into Spanish Florida. So anybody reading this would think, gosh, nothing probably happened in, in the 1620s in St. Augustine. And we know that to be untrue. You know, there were people living here. They had generations of people have been living in this far-flung colonial outpost in a very diverse group at that. The 1619 project of the New York Times has brought a lot of renewed focus on more than 400 years of slavery in what is now the United States, but slavery was active in Florida at St. Augustine for more than half a century before that, right? Yeah, it's important to talk about what the slave trade looked like in the 17th century, especially in Spanish colonial dominions. The Castilian slave codes of the 13th century were what kind of dictated up to this point, the codified treatment of slaves in the New World. So first and foremost for the Spanish, slavery was an unnatural condition, one which could be changed. And race did not determine whether or not one would be enslaved. It was class. It was circumstance more than anything. There were plenty of Europeans who were enslaved in, in Spain and then later to the New World. So there were large populations of, of black skilled artisans, merchants, politicians, 
who lived in southern Spain for centuries before they ever even crossed the Atlantic. So, you know, when the first ships started establishing these settlements and colonies, there was a broad mix of both free and enslaved individuals. The commonality was that they were all seeking their opportunity for social advancement and the attainment of wealth. Another point, by the 1620s, the beginnings of Spain's religious sanctuary policies were forming, and that meant that individuals could convert to Catholicism and live in relative freedom, even own property, own their own slaves in some instances. Now, it didn't mean that they were going to, you know, uh, run the colony, but there was some autonomy. For many enslaved people in St. Augustine, they had some agency, more so than the English colonies. So that Spanish system of manumission begins very early on as well. People could buy their own freedom. You know, enslavement for them was not an identity. It was a condition. And in terms of records, the Spanish were very, very meticulous. They kept great records of both their Spaniards and enslaved populations of various ethnicities. Some of the best primary sources come from the Catholic Church. Catholicism, we have to remember, for the Spanish in the 17th century was everything. Religion was intertwined with government and society. So these diocesan records give us a glimpse into the daily lives of those in St. Augustine. It can speak to kind of the nuanced condition of enslavement in the colony, and also that close connection between the church and the state. Here we're looking at some other primary documents. These are translated abstracts of ecclesiastical records from 1594 to 1623. They're actually available digitally, these transcripts of the University of Florida. They provide a great overview of the activities within the parish, marriages, deaths, births, confirmations. The originals are actually still in St. Augustine with the diocese, but you can see the originals through the Slave Society's digital archive hosted by Vanderbilt University and directed by Jane Landers. So let's look at an entry. This is October 29th, 1623. It says here, quote, Anton, a slave of Governor Juan de Salinas, was baptized at the parish in St. Augustine, unquote. Now, it's one line. doesn't tell us a whole lot about religious freedom, but the fact that these individuals and these people have identities tells us a lot. You know, the fact that the baptism even occurred talks a lot about the relationship between the Spanish and the enslaved populations. And it talks about the importance and the humanality of how what they considered of the class, the race, and the status of these enslaved peoples. Now, we also see indigenous populations. I talked about the political interplay. You know, for many, baptism was a political move. It solidified a treaty in many instances. So, you know, there's so much that we can learn from these documents. You couple these with other ecclesiastical records, with official correspondence between the Spanish government, and we start to build kind of a, a biography of the lives of these individuals now 400 years after they occurred. The availability of digital copies is tremendous, and it makes the work of historians that much easier, but it also makes the history and the narrative that much richer and gets us closer to what the reality of every individual's lives in St. Augustine, what their lives were like back 400 years ago. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To find out more about Florida in the 1620s and see some of the documents we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Before Al Neuwirth and USA Today was pioneer newspaper woman Marie Ringo Holderman. Holly Baker has the story. Dr. Kimberly Wilmot Voss is a professor of journalism at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. She is also the author of several books, including The Food Section, 
Newspaper Women and the Culinary Community, and Women Politicking Politely, Advancing Feminism in the 1960s and 1970s. She recently talked to me about Marie Ringo Holderman. Known as the First Lady of Florida Journalism, Holderman founded the Cocoa Tribune in Cocoa, Florida in 1917. When Marie Ringo Holderman founded the Cocoa Tribune, very few women had positions in journalism, particularly as editors, owners, or publishers. Marie is known largely as the First Lady of Florida Journalism. And rightfully so. Uh, she was truly a pioneer and she did some amazing things from simply owning newspapers to starting a second newspaper. She championed causes from suffrage to establishing Sebastian Inlet. She did this at a time when women just didn't have that much space in the public sphere. When she started her Cocoa newspaper, it was 1917. Women didn't even have the right to vote yet. And she was known as a smart journalist and also a smart businesswoman. By the time she gets to Coco, she's already run her own newspaper and sold it. And so she had experience. In fact, her Manatee newspaper, the local city council asked her not to leave, asked her not to sell it because the newspaper was such a central part of their community. So she's kind of taking that with her, if you will, her experience when she gets over to Coco, which of course was a small, small community back then. When Marie Ringo Holderman arrived in Cocoa in 1917, it was a small fishing village with a population of 900 people. Over the next few decades, the number of Cocoa residents more than quadrupled. The Cocoa Tribune played an important role in informing and influencing the community as it grew. This was purely her paper. She was married, she had a child, but uh, she was the owner and the editor. So although she was married and her husband handled some of the business background, this was her paper. So she was a local celebrity. If you go online, you can kind of see stories about her being recognized, boats being named for her. When she travels into South Florida, it makes the newspapers. So she started at the newspaper and it was really just her and two or three other employees. By the time she leaves the newspaper, she has 40 employees. So she's developing, you know, as the community is growing, so was her newspaper. She was all about the editorial role. She wrote columns. And even as folks came in, as she hired more people, it was her voice that was central to that newspaper. Marie Ringo Holderman successfully ran the Cocoa Tribune for almost 50 years. In 1965, she sold her newspaper to the Gannett Company. She passed away three years later at the age of 83. Dr. Kimberly Voss. She really was so ahead of her time. You know, if you look at even her byline, she never gave up her maiden name. And those are things that we don't really see kind of coming back again into the late 60s and early 70s. Her ability to sell her newspaper to Gannett, that was the first Gannett paper in Florida, was a really big deal. And um, Al Newarth, who was Lori Wilson's husband, was the one that finally convinced her to sell. But many men came down trying to uh, take that newspaper. And she said no every single time. Um, so she had to be courted and treated with authority. And so it was a really impressive concept, not only on the newspaper, but make those kinds of decisions that I don't think women were always respected for. She started in 1917 and sold her newspaper in 1965. Oh, the things she lived through. <laughs> you know, it's kind of an amazing concept that she kept doing that, particularly as Coco grew and her newspaper grew. She really is one of those women that should be remembered in Florida history. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society, 
and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. That's where you'll find archived editions of this program and our television series, Florida Frontiers. That's myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Stay safe and have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.